on June 2nd, 2010. Children were spending their week off enjoying the lovely weather that bathed the Lake District area of the UK County of Cumbria. Many families from all over the UK visit this area all year round, taking in its breathtaking, picturesque scenery. That summer was no exception, apart from one blemish that will forever stay with the people of Cumbria, indeed with the UK as a whole. It was on that day of June 2nd that one of the worst gun massacres in UK history occurred. In the space of an eight-hour period, a 52-year-old taxi driver by the name of Derek Bird went on a 25-mile rampage of mass murder throughout the county. Indiscriminately shooting passers-by, innocent people going about their everyday business, his own colleagues and acquaintances, and even his own twin brother. It would only end when Bird turned the gun on himself in a remote location. Along with the infamous Hungerford Massacre of 1987 and the Dunblane Primary School shootings in 1996, it is ranked as one of the worst atrocities in British criminal history. Please join me as we explore the shocking events that led 12 families shattered at the hands of Derek Bird, a man that had come unraveled, leaving an entire country looking for answers. Derek Bird was described by people who knew him in various ways, be it his fellow taxi drivers, drinking partners, or his neighbors from the tiny village of Roa, all classed him as affable, friendly, good-natured, a typical Cumbrian, a good neighbor, a bit of a laugh, and good company. Derek Bird was, um, he was a quiet guy, um, kept himself to himself, you know, he... He's a nice guy, he's a pleasant guy, he's, you know, he's, he's not violent, he's not overly aggressive, he's, he just plods along and gets on with it. From a decent family and in a decent and, and very beautiful neighbourhood. I was upset at the photograph that was put on the television at first because he looked like a thug and he wasn't a thug. He was a family man, a father of two and a grandfather and was outgoing and involved in many diverse pastimes, such as scuba diving. He was 52 years old, slightly overweight, and with a receding hairline, was single and worked as a self-employed taxi driver, operating out of a taxi rank situated on the main road of the town of Whitehaven, Cumbria. A father, a grandfather, a hardworking man, a charity giver, a well-liked neighbor, a quiet man from a good family who was active, outgoing, and cheerful. Derek Bird appeared to be all of these things, right up until he went to bed on the evening of June 1st, 2010. By the end of the following day, his name was known throughout the country for something entirely different. 
On June 2nd, 2010, Derek rose early and dressed as he normally did each day. Being a taxi driver, he was used to working all sorts of hours and was no stranger to getting up and out of the house in the early morning hours. But as he closed the door to his home that morning, something was different. Derek left his home armed with two weapons, a 12-bore shotgun and a 22 caliber rifle fitted with a telescopic sight and silencer. After loading the guns into his car, Derek then drove three miles east to the nearby village of Lamplew. It was in Lamplew that his twin brother David had a large farmhouse the fruits of building himself a successful garage business. David was happily married and had three adult daughters. He was a shining example of the kind of success hard work can bring. Derek's brother enjoyed a wealthy lifestyle. Bird knew his brother's patterns all too well. He knew that David's wife and daughter would be away that day. And also, they kept their doors unlocked. At 5.30 a.m., it's believed that Derek silently led himself into his brother's home through the rear kitchen entryway. David's black Labrador dog, Jed, would have been familiar with Derek, so one could assume did not alert David to an intruder. Derek then made his way up the stairs into the main bedroom where David lay sleeping. Derek then shot his brother several times in the head and upper torso using the 22 rifle and attached silencer. David was killed instantly. Derek then dragged his brother's body off the bed and towards the bedroom door, but he then abandoned whatever idea he had about what he had planned to do with his brother's body. Instead, he walked back downstairs and left the farmhouse. Well, I've known them all my life since they were born. And I've, I've watched them grow up since they were just babies. Just unreal. I mean, uh, you can't, you just, you can't, you can't believe what's happened. Just cannot believe what has happened. Derek then drove to the nearby village of Frizzington, where the Bird family lawyer, Kevin Commons, lived in a large property called Mowbray Farm. Here, he parked outside the lane, leading up to the house and sat gazing at the front entrance for several minutes. He was seen sitting in his car watching the laneway by a woman walking her dog, Iris Carruthers. She knew Derek. They had gone to school together. Iris recalls what happened next. And as I passed him, he had his window wound down the car, and I just said, "Are you laddie, all right?" Because obviously I knew Derek would be at school and that, but he didn't. He didn't speak. He just carried on, and I left him stationed in front of the gate in the lane. After several minutes of Derek just sitting there staring at the laneway, he started up his car and made his way back home. Arriving home at about 6:30, Derek, by all accounts, appeared to be normal 
and was actually seen washing his car outside of his house by a neighbor at about 9.30 a.m. that morning. It was about the same time that a horrified local farmer, John Hind, a close friend of David Bird, had made the horrific discovery of David's blood-spattered body in the bedroom of his house. David hadn't answered the door when John had knocked early that morning. Seeing that his car was in the driveway, John entered the house, thinking David had maybe had an accident or was ill. Upon discovering David, John Hind immediately notified the police, who arrived on the scene almost shortly after. Brutal murders are not a regular occurrence in gentle villages such as Lamplu, and so a massive police response soon ensued. David's wife and daughters were informed of his death, and it is possible that police even tried to inform Derek that his brother had been murdered. There would be no reason for them to suspect him at that point after all. But Derek wouldn't answer his phone. He wasn't home. He had left again. As police were arriving at his twin brother's farmhouse, Derek was in his silver Citroen Picasso, driving back towards the village of Frizzington. At 10 a.m., Derek arrived back at the lane leading to Mowbray Farm, but this time he drove up it, parking his car across the entry of the farmhouse. He then sat and waited for Kevin Commons to come outside. Twenty minutes later, Kevin came out of the farmhouse to see who had parked across his driveway. Recognizing it was Derek, Kevin's initial feeling of pleasant surprise undoubtedly must have turned into confusion and fear after recognizing that Derek had a rifle pointed directly at him. Before Kevin could flee, Derek had shot him several times, leaving him to die on his driveway. Derek then placed the rifle on the back seat of his car and drove off. He had neglected to fit the silencer onto the rifle before shooting Kevin, and so the gunshots had rung out into the country sky. Neighbors had heard several shots and immediately alerted police. Due to the remoteness and privacy of Mowbray Farm, it took some time before Kevin's body was found. With the news of a second possible shooting in such a small area, police were quickly dispatched to Frizzington. Derek actually passed the responding patrol cars as he was driving away from the village. His next intended destination was the nearby town of Whitehaven, where he operated as a cab driver. By 10.30 a.m., Derek had arrived at the cab station in Whitehaven. As he scanned the nearby huddle of people located near the station, he spotted the person he was looking for, his fellow cab driver, 
Darren Rucastle. He then got out of his car and approached him. Darren, who had been having a coffee and a cigarette while leaning in the doorway of the cab office, had his back to Derek, but turned when he heard the unmistakable voice of his friend quite calmly saying, Darren, here, I want you. That was the last sound Darren was ever to hear. Because as he turned around, Derek shot him in the face at close range with the shotgun. Darren was killed instantly. Derek then calmly took aim and fired at another cab driver and friend of his, Don Reed, who had tried to get to Darren's lifeless body to see if there was anything he could do to save his friend. Don was hit in the back by shotgun pellets, and although a serious wound, it was not fatal. A call came into police at 10.33 reporting shots fired on Duke Street in Whitehaven. Derek then got back into his car, where he spotted another taxi driver he knew. Again, someone he once considered a close friend, Paul Wilson. Wilson was walking down towards the cab rank, past Whitehaven Police Station, when Derek pulled up alongside. Leaning in to talk to his friend, Paul was staggered backwards by the sear of shotgun pellets that Derek fired towards him at point-blank range. Well, come around the corner. Um, we're on Scott Street now. Uh, police station's up in front of us, up the top road there. Um, basically, my owners is. Uh, got my documents to do. I got to be about here, and uh, heard my name being shouted. I've looked over, and there's Birdie in his car. So I've basically just walked over. I've ducked down to look in the car, and bang, shot me straight away. Um, didn't know it at the time, but gust of air across my face, and uh, you know, I've been shot, and. Most of the pellets have ended in the wall behind me. And a gentleman comes up to me and he says, are you all right, mate? And grabs me by the shoulders. And he says, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. It's just a mate of mine shooting blanks. Just been in Dalford. I'm, just, you know, I'm all right, don't worry about me. He says, no, mate. He's bloody shot, yeah. And he says, I'm looking at him and I'm, what? And I could see in the background a, a police van with lights and sirens flying past me. I thought, if I'd been shot, why is the police van not stopping? You know, you think, well, if you've been shot, the police would be right there. And you instantly pick up your hand and put it on your face, and the whole hand was just red. The whole hand, and, you know, when you cut yourself, you may be a little bit of blood, but no, this was this was a lot of blood all over my hand, and I'm looking at my hand going, uh, <laughs> okay then. His face was seared and grazed, but amazingly, he escaped with no serious or lasting injuries. Derek then drove off as Paul ran into the police station to alert police. This was the third alert police had received in total that morning about the actions of Derek Bird, and it was unknown to them that all three of these incidences were linked. Paul was not only able to name the shooter, but he could even provide contact details for Derek and knew the description of the number plate of his car. 
police in Whitehaven Station sent an urgent radio message to all patrol cars in Cumbria, issuing a description of Derek and his car. As Paul was reporting what had happened to police, Derek was in his car about to enter his second phase of killings. Anybody who crossed his path was now a target. At the top of Scotch Street, Derek parked and called out to 15-year-old Ashley Gaster on the pretense of asking the girl directions. As she approached the vehicle, Derek took aim with the shotgun and shot twice at the girl, each time missing her. She then ran to safety and Derek drove off. I was coming down from the shop and he was coming like across this way to go up the corner when I was coming down and then that's when he put up beside me and he said something so that's when I went over to the car and he said do you like something and I said turn on and said what to him and then he that was when he was pointing the gun at me and then I uh, ducked down and then that's when he shot and I felt it go past my hair and then I ran down to my sister's crying and he shot again while I was running down to my sister's. Police were responding by this time, but as most of the police in the area had already been dispatched to the scenes of Derek's earlier shootings, which by this time had been discovered, only a few officers were able to respond instantly. There weren't even any available patrol cars at the Whitehaven station. The area was so normally quiet that any suspected murder would tie up police time and attention. A rampage couldn't even be estimated at. An unarmed police officer managed to commandeer one of the taxis at the rank, and driver and officer set off in pursuit of Derek, joined shortly by a police van in transit containing two officers. Police gave chase for a quarter of a mile until Derek sighted another taxi and pulled up alongside it. The driver was another friend of Derek's, Terry Kennedy, who was driving a regular fare, Emma Percival, home from shopping. Terry was hit so badly in his right hand that surgeons who operated later were unable to save it. Emma sat in the front passenger seat and was wounded in the face and neck as Derek pulled up alongside the vehicle. I just seen the two barrels coming out the window and as I turned, I just heard a bang and the window, the taxi's side window smashing, just shattered everywhere. The taxi driver didn't know he had been it till he turned around and looked at me because all his blood and all his flesh was all over me. And then I just took my seatbelt off and just jumped out the taxi because as he had shot at us, this policeman was following him in a car and he jumped out the car, and soon as they say me taking my seatbelt off, he told me to jump out that taxi and run. I was still, I was in so much shock. The only thing I could do was run to a police officer. And then I can feel something running down my arm. And then I took my jacket off, I looked, and I was like, oh my God, I've been it myself. The pursuing police stopped to assist the casualties that they had just witnessed Derek shoot. And by the time they had assessed the injuries, Although severe, were not life-threatening. Derek was heading south out of Whitehaven. With a few minutes gain on his pursuers and heading towards the seaside town of Seascale, Derek abruptly turned 
and made his way across country, passing through the market town of Egremont. As he made his way through, he encountered 57-year-old mother of two, Susan Hughes. She was making her way home, carrying two heavy bags of shopping. A witness cycling past was later to describe how he saw Derek stop the car, get out, and walk over to Susan. He then shot her twice in the stomach at point-blank range, got into his car, and drove away. The cyclist, not believing what he had just witnessed, immediately went to give first aid and raised the alarm, but Susan shortly died afterwards before emergency response could arrive. He just stared at me, and he just had a very blank expression. I mean, he didn't look angry or cross, or he didn't say anything, he didn't do anything really. But I didn't think I looked at him for very long, because I, you know, my eyes were just drawn to this huge telescopic sniper rifle he was holding. I mean, you know, it, it, was, it looked so heavy, even though he had two hands like this, it was pointing down at the ground. And they say he never pointed it at me. I didn't even think it was a real gun. But then he just sort of scurried very quickly, got into the car, uh, closed the door and just drove off down the hill into Egremont. It was only when I looked back up the hill that I saw the, uh, there was his body slumped on the floor that had been behind the van, uh, you know, the, the taxi. And uh, I saw that uh, she was just lying there essentially all fully on the pavement facing down the hill and uh, there was two bags of soft shopping that it just looked like she put down or dropped. It was obvious that she'd hurt herself, you know, but it looked like maybe she banged her head or scraped her head and she was unconscious. And then someone ran out of one of the houses and she just shouted, there's a madman on the loose, shooting people. And it, I think it was only at that point that it suddenly clicked in, in my mind anyway. Oh my God, that's what this is. Derek next encountered 71-year-old retired security guard Kevin Fishburn, who was making his way to the local betting shop, as was his daily custom. Derek calmly stopped behind the elderly man, got out, and shot him in the back. Kenneth was killed instantly. Not much further up the road, Derek pulled up next to another passerby. Les Hunter, and called him over to his car in the pretense of asking directions. When Les leaned into the passenger window to speak to him, Derek fired at him point-blank with a shotgun. No, soon I was on the main road, a car pulls up and just says, can I see you a minute, mate? So I said, ah, no problem. So I stepped off the curb to go towards him, and as I did, I looked in the car and I seen a shotgun lying across the passenger seat. Well, I thought that, that was queer for the kickoff. But I mean, as I went closer, I was about five foot off he'd be then, uh, he started to lift the gun up. Well, I knew something was wrong then, I just turned away as quick as I could. And he fired one shot, which went past my head, and it just a burning sensation. Pellets hit me in the face, they're held up a bit now. And, uh, it was a loud bang and near deafened me. And as I crouched down further, he fired the other barrel and right in the middle of my back. 
and I've still got the 29 pellets in me back. When I got shot and I went on all fours with the second shot, the pain, I've never had pain like that in my life. That was very painful. He was as calm as anything. Through sheer fortitude, Les managed to dodge and move his head away, avoiding the brunt of the blast, but still receiving more than 39 shotgun pellets to the upper back as he dived out of the way. Derek drove on to the nearby village of Wilton, where he parked his car in front of another acquaintance, Jason Carey, who belonged to the same scuba diving club that Derek did. Derek picked up his shotgun and walked up the path and knocked on Jason's door. However, as Jason was in bed and his wife took so long in answering the door, that by the time she calmed down her barking dog and answered the door, she was just in time to see Derek driving off in his silver Citroen Picasso. She was unaware at that moment that had she answered the door sooner, both she and her husband would have been shot dead. Further down the road, Derek encountered 65-year-old mole catcher Isaac Dixon, known to all his friends as Spike. Isaac had been out that day plying his trade and just minutes before had been chatting amiably with his friend and employer, local farmer Norman Sherwin, near the gate of one of Norman's fields. Once the pair had finished talking, Norman drove off in his tractor, encountering an annoyed looking motorist in a silver Citroen Picasso on his way down the lane. Although Norman waved in acknowledgement, as tends to be the tradition in that countryside, the driver paid him no attention once he had passed. Isaac was not that lucky. Derek shot him in the head and chest and left him to die in the gateway of the field that he had been working in before driving further up the road. What I first seen, I come in, turned in the lane end with the tractor. Just coming slowly down the lane. And the car came speeding around the corner from that direction, straight along this way, identified it as a taxi with no windscreen. And a very evil, very sort of madman driving, looked straight at me. Never forget his face. And he came speeding past me, looked straight at me and kept going. I thought someone's upset that guy, as if he'd been uh, run off the road or something like that. Somebody was in a, a foul mood and thought nothing more of it at that time. Because usually you get a wave of drivers or whatever just on these country roads. But he didn't. He just right past me at a great rate of knots. Well, after he left me on this track, he turned right and went a few hundred yards up over the brow of the hill and Spike Dixon was walking his dogs, going to look his mole traps, just walk along the verge of the road and he just pulled up and shot him. Simple as that.
Jennifer Jackson was 66 years old and lived in the Wilton area for the best part of her life, married to her husband James. She had recently had knee surgery and had taken a brisk morning walk around the country lanes that surrounded the area where she lived. She'd been out that morning and was making her way home with just about a quarter mile to go. As she was walking, she was startled by the sound of a car horn blowing behind her and she turned around to see who it was. She didn't recognize the man driving the vehicle, nor did she have time to recognize what he was pointing at her before she was shot twice, once in the chest and then in the head at close range. She died almost instantly. A quarter mile away, Jennifer's husband was talking with Steve and Christine Hunter on the doorsteps of the Hunter's home while he waited for Jennifer. All three heard the two shots. But in a farming countryside area, shotgun sounds are commonplace. And none of the three had yet heard the unfolding news about the rampage that was taking place within the local proximity. About a minute later, a silver Picasso drove past them, but stopped about 12 yards up the road. The driver reversed and then opened fire at the three. Steve tried to swing his wife Christine out of the way, but she was hit in the back with shotgun pellets and suffered a collapsed lung. James was shot in the head and died almost instantly. He had died without knowing that his beloved wife had just been killed moments before him. Known him since perhaps I was 20. Did a lot of social things with him. We went to the All Blacks match. Jimmy Jackson, great guy, great guy, a witty fella. And he was a guy who had devoted his life to the ambulance service. He spent a lifetime saving lives. And then he's shot on the roadside for no reason. Absolute waste of a great life. She's a church-going lady. I think there's secretary for the church. Just a lovely lady. At this time, it was 11.05 a.m. In the space of less than an hour, Derek Bird had shot 15 people. Seven of those had died, and several others were gravely wounded. And he was nowhere near finished yet. Ten minutes later, and again heading back towards Sea Scale, Derek came across local semi-professional rugby player, 31-year-old Gary Prudhomme. Gary was spending his day off helping his father out by trimming hedgerows on his land. As such, he'd been out of the house and away from the TV and radio, and so was unaware of the mass panic that had been rapidly unfolding in his area, and didn't know about the dangerous man that was on the loose, undertaking a rampage that had already spilled so much blood in such a short time. Gary would not have panicked when he saw the car pull up. He may not even have been aware when Derek walked up to him and shot him twice in the back of the head, killing him instantly. 
Gary played for us for a long time, played over 100 matches, and he was um, really an exemplary player. Everything about his character, his commitment, his discipline uh, was first class. Uh, he was known as you know, uh, an automatic choice in the team uh, when he was playing at his, his very best, and uh, really an example to young rugby players nowadays of the sort of standards that you need to meet. At the same time that Derek had shot Gary Prudhomme, Cumbria police were constantly updating their website, sending out urgent public messages, which were updated constantly as any fresh information or sightings of Derek Bird were made. Crucially, police are asking members of the public in Whitehaven and Egremont to stay indoors until further notice. Yes, and uh, they're currently searching for that uh, dark grey silver Citroen Picasso uh, driven by a man, they say, uh, in his 30s with a shaven head and uh, currently asking for information about that. But that is clearly an ongoing operation. So uh, when there is more detail on that shooting, we will that, uh, bring that to you. With thoughts of Hungerford and Dunblane running through the minds of the police, tension was high. The mass panic led to a surge in mobile phone activity with panicking people either contacting their loved ones to let them know they were safe or being contacted by their loved ones and friends. One such worried loved one was Leanne Jarman, the fiancé of 23-year-old estate agent Jamie Clark. She knew that Jamie was out conducting house viewings in the Seascale area that morning. The exact place she had just heard on the radio that was believed Derek Bird was heading for. Worried, she tried in vain to reach Jamie on his mobile phone, but failed to get through. The signal was terrible, and so many people at that moment had the same idea, and the network just couldn't handle the traffic. Jamie had been driving out of the Seascale area when he'd had the misfortune to pass Derek Bird driving into the area. Derek shot at the young estate agent's car, hitting Jamie and causing him to crash the car, which overturned. Emergency services who arrived shortly afterwards believed that they were dealing with a fatal road traffic accident and were shocked to see that the dead man had what was clear to them gunshot wounds. Jamie Clark. He'd moved to Carlisle and his partner was a schoolteacher. Only 23-year-old. Grand lad. I couldn't believe it when I seen his photo. He's just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Jamie was victim number nine of Derek's rampage. And now it was 11.25 a.m. Entering Seascale. Derek collided with the Land Rover, driven by a local pub landlord, Harry Berger. It caused serious damage to the vehicle and sending it sprawling across the road. Reversing, Derek took aim and shot at Harry, who instinctively raised his hands to protect his face when he saw Derek aiming at him. His right hand and arm took the brunt of the blast, badly damaging it in the process. I heard a helicopter coming overhead and I was looking out towards the village when I heard two shots. I have to say at this point you start to get a little anxious 
I know that there's an incident occurring. I know there's been gunshots fired in Whitehaven. I'm now hearing shots in my own village, helicopter. But at that point, my alerter went and I then went to my vehicle and went to the fire station. Derek didn't wait around to take a further shot at his victim. Instead, driving onwards. Police by this time were just 30 seconds behind Derek, with helicopters covering the area, pursuing him and giving visual updates on the route he was taking, but police who were pursuing in police vehicles were to suffer a further delay as they were unable to pass the Land Rover that was spread all over the road. Just 26 seconds after he shot Harry, Derek stopped his car behind 64-year-old cyclist Michael Pike, who was out for a morning cycle. Derek shot out his back tire and then shot Michael point-blank in the face with a shotgun. He then drove off, and just a few yards further on, encountered his next victim, 66-year-old animal welfare volunteer Jane Robinson. Jane was the final person to lose her life at the hands of Derek Bird. As he had done so on numerous occasions that morning already, he simply called her over to the vehicle on some pretense and shot her point-blank in the face before driving off again, heading out of Seascale towards the village of Boot. I was the village milkman for 40-odd years. I knew all these people. Jane and, and her sister Barry have been in the village. They've been here all their lives. You know, very ordinary people and didn't interfere with people. They, you know, they just got on about their own lives and did their own thing. Um, would never have done any harm to anybody. They were, you know, really well-liked people. Well, this community has lost people that gave back to the community. And, you know, that can never be replaced. Derek was to shoot at two others on his way driving out of Seascale. A woman walking up a nearby hill, and then seconds later, a teenager. Neither was hit by the fire, and he did not stop to fire again at either of them. Instead, carrying on his journey towards the remote village of Boot, situated in the Lake District National Park itself. On a remote country lane, Surrounding the park, Derek encountered a holidaying couple driving towards him. As he was approaching me, I thought, this fella's not going to slow down and there's no way he's going to get through this gap. So at that moment in time of maybe right decision, I decided to edge my car right up against, take the chance to put it against the wall, pull my wing mirror in. And as he was 20 yards away, I just said, you stupid sod, slow down. I just hid my head in my hands and thought if I'm going to die or get hurt I don't want to see it happening to me. And within a split second there was two thuds on the side of my car. The first one was boom and then the, the, the next one was really like a grinding sound and I thought oh god what's happened to the car? On the main road coming up the valley he tried to pass a car and he'd hit the wall. The stones had gone through his tyre. And you can tell the marks down the main road, the black mark, when his tyre's been going down. And when he's got down to here, his tyre came off up there, about 20 or 30 yards up the road. And he's come along 
and along there, all on the, on the rim, and he stopped there. All in a split instinct, another car coming in the same direction that Derek Bird was pulled up beside me, asking, had I seen a taxi? And I said, yeah, he's just hit me. I said, we think he's pulled him round the lane. He said, well, he's just shot my back window out and injured my partner. But still, he continued on. And just a few seconds later, found another target for him to indiscriminately shoot at. A campsite filled with holidaymakers and children. Here, two people were shot and severely wounded by Derek, a young female hiker and a teacher, Samantha Christine. Although they required hospitalization for their injuries, both were to survive. Just 400 yards further away, Derek Citron finally crashed. His front tire had been obliterated and had come off following the collision with the stone wall, and his remaining tires were shredded as the result of the crash with the Land Rover in C-Scale. He got out of the car, holding his shotgun across his chest, and was approached by the Tucker family, Zoe and Lee, and their two sons. Unaware of the events that had already occurred that morning, instead they approached Derek with the concern for the well-being of the Citron driver. They approached him and asked him if he was all right. They immediately knew something was wrong, almost sinister. It wasn't just the gun he was holding, but he also looked vacant, as if staring off ahead of them, almost through them. He was almost robotic when asked if he was all right, indicating he had hit a stone he then turned to look Zoe right in the eye and muttered, You're all right, before telling the Tuckers to just go. He then turned and walked away over a bridge and crossing a stream and disappeared into the nearby woods. Already disturbed by what they had seen, a look into the back seat of the crashed Citroen convinced Lee Tucker to contact the police and he dialed 999 adding to the fact that an armed man who didn't seem to be aware of his circumstances and seemed emotionless as he walked away from the scene of the crash, Lee saw that the window of the car was smashed and inside the car was littered with spent bullets and shotgun cartridges. There was also a rifle in the back seat, fitted with a silencer. Instinctively, the couple made their way from the vehicle and towards the village of Boot to safety. They were the last people to see Derek Bird alive. My officers and I are absolutely determined to get to the bottom of why this happened. However, it may not be possible to establish all the answers because we cannot speak to Derek Bird. Please join us in the next episode as we not only discover the aftermath of Derek's rampage, but we will also look back into his life and try to understand what drove this man to snap in such a horrific manner.
And now I would like to introduce to you two podcasts that we're real big fans of, Mirths and Monsters. Well, hello, my friends. I am CK, and I'm the host of a new and amusing podcast called Mirths and Monsters. Ever wondered about the cry of the haggish? Okay, they do. Or wondered if a man and his canine companion, say hello Finn, could travel back in time to watch a celebrity death match between St. George and the Dragon. Wonder no more. All these are answered, and more, on Mirths and Monsters. Available on iTunes, Podbean and Soundcloud. Catch me on Twitter, at Mirths and Monsters, or MirthsandMonstersPod at gmail.com. Till next time, Slantja, your health. And they walk among us. They Walk Among Us is a podcast exploring the UK's most sinister and surreal crimes, including the woman who killed the boyfriend as he spent too much time on Facebook, to the teenage boys whose online relationship involves spies, sex, and the near-fatal stabbing of one of them. Subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. Don't forget to check out our sponsor for this episode, Talkspace. To get matched with your perfect therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Minds. And as a special offer, use the coupon code Minds to get $30 off your first month and show your support to this podcast. That's Talkspace.com slash Minds. And use the coupon code Minds. Talkspace. Therapy for how we live today. Thanks again to Paul for his hard work in helping us get this episode out to you. And a quick thanks to Charles Napier, who also has his own podcast in development. He was kind enough to spend some time with me helping me with the script narration for this episode. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E. Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to run